Welcome to Engaging History. My name is Christopher Kinsella, author of Chain of Deception. I'm a professor of history at Cuyahoga Community College in Northeast Ohio. My podcasts are not endorsed by any individual or organization. This podcast is my opinion and interpretation of the historical events that I will discuss. The purpose of the podcasts are in general to discuss American and world history in a way that engages you and explains so much of the country and the world around you. But I also discuss it in a way that is understandable and interesting. Welcome to podcast number 18 in our series on world history. Just a clarification that in podcast 17, where we wrapped up the American Revolution and I discussed the 25,000 roughly American casualties, please know that, in t- that, that those numbers get very sketchy because of the, how many years ago it was and uh, how one defined casualty and when one person died as a result of the war X amount of years later, is that actually considered one of the ones killed by the American Revolution, et cetera? But the number that, that according to historical statistics is 25,000 casualties of those 4,435 rebel soldiers actually killed in the eight-year conflict. Please know, too, how drastically more deadly warfare will become as the years march on. In eight years, 400, excuse me, 4,435 soldiers actually killed. By the time we get to the American Civil War, we will lose 7,000 in just 20 minutes. And that's 7,000 killed, not injured. So unfortunately, just how much, how drastically deadly it is going, warfare will continue to become. So in this podcast, we're going to look at the foundations for what will eventually become known as the American Constitution. As of now, and what I'm now meaning in late 1783, early 1784, mythically, a lot of Americans believe that we essentially segued right from the American Revolution to the Constitutional Convention, and boom, we had our Constitution and we lived happily ever after. Again, as I ended in the prior podcast, United is one of the last things we are as the states of America for reasons we'll flesh out now. But in terms of the eventual what becomes known as the Constitution of the United States, that's not just drawn out of thin air, and we didn't jump right into that the moment we signed the Treaty of Paris. So to look and set the foundation for what will eventually be called the Constitutional Convention, of which that document will derive from, just to set the foundation as to where did that idea come from, not taking anything away from the Founding Fathers, but by and large, that national constitution was the brainchild of experiments that colonists were already doing in their own states with their own state constitution. Well, where did the idea of a state constitution come from? That's where the masterminds must have been. Well, once again, no, I'm not taking away their intelligence and leadership and wherewithal, but the constitutions were really modifications of those colonial charters. If you remember several podcasts ago when I discussed one of those most uh, famous 
colonial charters, of course, that being the Mayflower Compact. Compact charter, it's the same idea. So the, when these charters are known to be you know, fairly leak-proof, and bulletproof, it's no surprise that those organization of settlers would modify that, throw it on steroids, call it what you want, to eventually become known as a state charter, state constitution, and this is where the founding fathers will eventually draw many of their ideas from to eventually give an American or national constitution. Please note, though, a couple of things about the individual state constitutions that the founding fathers will draw from. Number one is every one of them was written out in a formal document. America will become literally slap-happy with the notion of writing things out. As a rule of thumb, by and large, Americans tend to be very, very committed to things needing to be written out. It's not that we're against the formal handshake. It's not that we're against the, what they becomes known as the gentleman's agreement or the personal agreement. But moving forward, for agreements that are going to take hold for as at least a lengthy duration of time, we Americans tend to be more comfortable with things being drawn up. We want it spelled out in paper. Can you imagine walking into a car dealership, throwing down a couple of thousand dollars saying, hey, finance me for the Chevy Corvette, finance me for this Ford F-150. Let's not worry about the paperwork. I'll belt you a check out every four, four weeks or so for 500 bucks. Yeah, good luck with that. Imagine trying to buy a house the same way. Imagine, again, getting into almost any formal agreement without something being written down on paper. Trust, as Ronald Reagan used to say, but verify. Well, the verification comes out from the written document. All right, a couple of other common denominators with these early state constitutions. Executive or individual power declined dramatically. Legislative or group power increased dramatically. That really shouldn't be a surprise to any listener because we, as the American rebels who ultimately won that American revolution, we were practically terrified of any one individual with sole authority. We were far more comfortable with groupthink, with the idea of a collective organization of people that would be mandating the laws in which we were to follow. No surprise that these state uh, governments or excuse me, state constitutions also eliminated patronage and nepotism. We had no appetite any longer that you're going to become a legislator, that you're going to become a senator, you're going to become a, gov a governor because your dad was, because your last name is Smith. We will have no tolerance for patronage and nepotism. No one politician is going to turn around and hand, in these days, men only, and hand their son a job. I'm going to step down, but Junior's going to take my place. We will have no appetite for that. And it's something that continues well into the 21st century. Does that mean that last names don't make a difference? Of course not. But notice, for example, in the year 2000, you mean to tell me that some of the millions of votes that George W. Bush received, you mean to tell me that some people did not vote for him because they were so impressed with his father, even though he was a one-term president? Of course he did. Bush even admitted that. His last name made a difference. 
No difference than Hillary Clinton's made in 2016. Notice when she was first lady. Notice when she ran for the Senate, state Senate in New York State. Notice that it was Hillary Rodham Clinton. She was proud of that maiden name in her birthplace in uh, northeastern Illinois. But notice in the 2016 election, you never saw the name Rodham. Don't confuse voters. Use the name Clinton. Ride those coattails. There's no doubt she became not only the front runner in the Democratic primaries because of her last name, but she also received millions of votes because her husband was Bill Clinton, not taking away anything that Hillary Clinton did on her own right, not taking away the fact that she did not permanently break the glass ceiling for a woman in politics to become the nominee of a major political party. But you're never going to convince me and you're not going to convince most that her, well, her last name had nothing to do with it. Even she knew that. Because if that was the case, why didn't she drop the name Clinton and go by Hillary Rodham, right? So it's not that they're going to completely eliminate nepotism and patronage and the effectiveness of a last name, but they don't want it to be official. In other words, George W. Bush had to run against Al Gore if he wanted to be president. The only way he was going to take the oath of office is if he had the electoral math pushing him past 270, the same way with Hillary Clinton, right? So they can have the last name. They can enjoy the coattail. They can ride the coattails that that last name can do. But in our country, they still need to get the votes. So another part, two that we also wanted to see as state constituents within our various within our various um, colonies, now states in the United States, is the Bill of Rights established as a defense from governmental overreach. We, within these individual states, had our own individual Bill of Rights of what the government could not do to us or that would negatively impact us. And a final element that we find in these state constitutions is the ability to get rid of our governors other than through the ballot box. Oh, you mean overthrow them? You could look at it that way, but they like to use the word impeach, right? Impeachment of governors became legalized in the state constitution. No surprise then that our national constitution would also adopt the same formality. So, again, when it came to state constitutions, again, a quick overview, most of them were modifications of those formal colonial charters. They were all written out as a formal accepted and signed document. There was a significant decrease in individual or executive control, a significant increase in legislative or group power, think, control. And then we eliminated patronage and nepotism. We established a Bill of Rights, and we had an established language that had the ability to get rid of a governor if he was engaged in wrongdoing. So that's those the covers, the individual th former 13 colonies that are now 13 states. That's just a summary of the common elements that we could find in each of those state governments. Now let's look to the national government. Right, Chris, that constitutional democracy in our republic. No. In 1781, when Cornwallis surrendered, and in September, on September 17, 1783, when Great Britain formally surrendered in the Treaty of Paris, we were governed nationally by the Confederation Congress 
under the guise of the auspices of the Articles of Confederation. The Articles of Confederation was our first attempt at self-governing. It's, it's no surprise how many of my students oftentimes either didn't know that or forgot about it. Well, it's no surprise. For the, the Articles of Confederation, the Confederation Congress has a real uphill battle trying to stay remembered in American society because the more time marches on, you have to remember what's on both sides of the Confederation Congress. You have that huge America, eight-year-long American Revolution on one side. Then you have that constitutional convention on the other side. So it's not it's no surprise that the Articles of Confederation, the Confederation Congress, oftentimes feels the squeeze between those two significant famous events. But we do need to remember, for the purposes in this podcast, to understand that the Confederation Congress was our law of the land for eight years, even before the war formally was over. But please know a couple of things about the Confederation Congress. There's three that I'd like to stress here. One is that it was designed out of fear of an oppressive regime. And that right there sowed the seeds of self-destructiveness. Our founding fathers, I am not making light of this term. I'm not trying to do use a form of subtle humor here. But our founding fathers, by and large, ladies and gentlemen, designed that form of government really experiencing a form of PTSD. We had just been fighting, or still as of 1781, have been fighting the British crown for the past seven years almost. And now we're going to create our own government that's going to have the chance that it could become just as despotic, just as destructive? Heck no. So we designed a form of government that was so unbelievably weak that in some cases it wasn't worth the parchment that it was written on. Take, for example, the second major point within the Confederation Congress. There was no executive or judicial branch. If you really want to say as a, you know, hold my feet to the fire and say, well, Chris, give me the person that was really in charge in Confederation America. It would be the president of the Congress. But he had no separate authority, anything near what our American president has today that our founding fathers formed just a few years later. We were too fearful of one person being in charge. We also did not trust a group of legal experts. There's no lawyers in these days per what our modern day understanding of, the, of a lawyer is today. We didn't trust the legal experts either. So we didn't even have a judicial branch to interpret the law. Power, which is the third point that I want to stress here, power rested primarily with our United States Congress. But that power wasn't given the type of authority that it needed to help us forge our way forward post the American Revolution. So again, those are just three tenets that I just wanted to stress that came out of the Confederation uh, Congress. Let's then look at the strengths or challenges of that Confederation government. First off, and this is something I want to stress, I am not trying to decry the Confederation government as nothing but negative things, that it truly was all negative. Not at all. In fact, there is some legacy out of, out of the Confederation Congress that we still have employed and are using in our modern day government here in the 21st century. And the first was the Northwest Ordinance that was formulated in the final year 
of the Confederation Congress. That, for example, is how many of our modern states in the modern-day Midwest essentially was born. What it did is it established procedures for the development of individual states carved out of lands that, yes, absolutely, was occupied by Native Americans prior to that. But it established the procedures for the state development in new lands. The way it worked quickly was this. When the white male population reached 5,000, they could from that land come together and organize a legitimate territory. If they did, they would have to formulate an elected legislature that would then work with the federal government. But that would be the extent of their political involvement. If the population reached and then exceeded 60,000 white men, they then could apply for statehood. But part of the the requirements for that is they would have to put forth their own independently created state constitution. Within that constitution, there would have to be clearly defined procedures for establishing law and order. Each territory and eventual state had to have a governor. They also had to have a panel of judges should the governor have to rely on them for legal interpretation. Ironically enough, slavery would be banned under the Northwest Ordinance. Now, wait a minute. Then if that's the case, how do we eventually get to the need for the Missouri Compromise? How do we get to this idea of judicial precedent determining whether a state comes in free or is a slave state. Oh yeah. Welcome to politics as America gets to become in her teenage years and gets to become a big person into adulthood. We're going to see just how messy that becomes because I agree with you. If this was part of the tenets of the Northwest Ordinance, slavery should never have continued outside of the 13 colonies. And you'd be exactly right in that. How then did that ultimately get upset or turned over? That's what we'll see as time marches on. But what's also interesting is that once a territory organized into statehood, there had to be the collection of tax dollars for the establishment of a public education system. So again, some good definitely came out of that, again, that Northwest Ordinance. Whereas some of the problems came in at the national or federal level is that the Confederation Congress had little to no authority to actually levy any kind of a national tax. And the problem was is that the United States had huge war debts that it had to pay, again, upwards of $57 million in 20, excuse me, in Economic depression, again, plagued the newly independent states, as was exemplified in 1786 by or in Shea's Rebellion. When Shea attempted to try to to pay his mortgage with the continental dollar, and the bank didn't want to use the continental dollar because there was no confidence in it, they wanted to be paid in the British pound. Shea didn't have access to that. Shea's farm almost went into foreclosure. He clearly was not the only one, and that's when farmers throughout the Northeast and eventually heading into the Southern states started to band together to put pressure on the Confederation Congress to do something about our plagued economic system. That's what would then reawaken the founding fathers to scratch their heads and say, boys, 
I think we got a problem. And that drew them in October of 1786 to the Annapolis State House for what became known as the Annapolis Convention in October of 1786. Because it was so late in the year, and the final harvest had to be gathered by all farmers present, they recognized that with the ensuing winter, there wasn't much that they could do in October other than conclude that something is seriously wrong with the existing government, the Confederation Congress. Something needed to be done quickly at the onset of the next diplomatic year, which would start in the spring of the following year. That, of course, is what I'm referring to by a convention that will later be labeled the Constitutional Convention. So why didn't they just jump right into it then in October? Because again, as I said, Congress by and large would retreat for the late fall months because of the harvest that had to be gathered and uh, different estates and farms had to be tended to. So because of that, they also realized that if this is going to take place, this convention, there's a lot of people, a lot of smart people that have just fought in that American Revolution or witnessed all that carnage. And now a group of men are forming or are meeting to maybe revise this existing government. Hey, we have our problems, but finish this phrase for me. The known evil is better than the, you got it, the unknown. And for that reason, the men realized if we're going to gather together next May, they decided from a central location, that being as central as possible, they could, that being in Philadelphia once again, out of the future, future labeled Independence Hall, that if that's where they're going to meet, in that same building that just if 10, a little more than 10 years prior, 11 years prior, that they drew up the Declaration of Independence a document to throw off the reins of government. And now they're going to turn around and revise the Confederation Congress to make it stronger or possibly replace it. There's going to be a lot of angry people. You already are familiar with one of them. John Jay is one of them. Patrick Henry is another. Patrick Henry, Declaration of Independence, give me liberty, give me death. That same man, 11 years later, at the onset of the Constitutional Convention, his famous phrase for that one, I smell a rat. And he left. He wanted no part of it. So there's going to be a lot of John Jays that are going to be suspicious of these men coming together that once formed the Declaration of Independence that now wants to strengthen the federal government. A lot of suspicion will, uh, will develop. As a result... They needed to figure out how do we meet as a group of men of 55 delegates ultimately will form. How do we meet without arising negative suspicion? And the brighter minds all concluded one thing. One person had the capacity to calm America's anxiety. And that, of course, was none other than the former commander of the American Revolution, George Washington. But getting Washington to join them was a lot easier said than done. 
So while the delegates at the Annapolis Convention disbanded and each went back to the respective colonies to their own individual farms and estates, the likes of Madison and Benjamin Franklin and a couple of others, after tending their own properties and getting past the fall harvest, as December of 1787 set in, they met, or excuse me, 1786, excuse me, they met at Mount Vernon to, shall we say, bounce a couple of ideas off of General Washington. And that's how the visit started. George, good to see you. How have you been? How's retirement? Can't thank you again enough for what you were able to do for our newly formed United States of America. But General Washington, got a couple of problems here. A couple of ideas we want to bounce off of you. Washington knew why they were there. He knew that something had to be done. He was smart enough to not make it vocal that he himself said this this Confederation Congress isn't worth, again, the parchment it's written on. He was smart enough to keep his mouth shut and let the brainchilds of the times figure that out. And now that brain trust was at his estate saying, we recognize there's a problem. We need to meet to revise the Confederation Congress document, or maybe even replace them. But with what, we don't know. But General Washington, you know as well as I do, sir, that the moment we meet behind closed doors, there's going to be a lot of people that are going to be suspecting that we're trying to create a new King George III that we had just spent the last eight years fighting. We need a way around that. George Washington essentially saying, I'm all ears. Good. Because we need not only those ears, we need what's between those ears and what's six feet below those ears. We need you, sir. Benjamin Franklin pressed significantly hard on this point. Without your presence, we might as well not even meet, as we are liable to be stoned, if not drawn and quartered, the moment the public catches wind that we're trying to revise America's federal Uh, the federal government of the United States of America. Washington was aghast. There's no battle to fight. None of you need a game plan. None of you need a tactical or strategic or logistical analysis. In other words, gentlemen, there is nothing that I'm going to bring to the table that you men will benefit from. And that's where they vehemently disagreed. All they need is his presence. Not that they stated it this way. But they could have also been crass enough to say, sir, basically, we need your pulse. We need you to be able to fog a mirror in that room for us because your presence will keep the unrest that wants to form outside of that hall to a minimum, if not eliminated. It took several days well into the holidays to actually press upon George Washington the importance of his being there. He reminded them once again that you gentlemen are going to be talking about things I have no knowledge of. You're going to be bouncing around names of theorists and political theorists, as you guys call them. I'm not going to have anything to say on that. I'll know nothing about it. Again, General Washington, you don't have to. We just need you there. That's when he reluctantly agreed. And the date was targeted as May 25th, 1787. 
George Washington was one of the first ones to arrive. The founding fathers that then arrived shortly later, that same morning, each one of them went in with George Washington looking them over. In other words, to the outsiders looking inside at this, wondering what's going on. George Washington being aware of every man going inside was of paramount importance because, again, he was able to keep the minds rest assured of John and Jane Q. Public that I'm not letting anybody in here that wants to overturn what we risked and gave our lives for, and so many gave our lives for. So for that reason, Washington was the last man in on that particular morning. The door was shut. Yes, it was locked. Yes, it was getting very warm outside. They closed all those windows and they pulled those shades. Can you imagine the odor in that room before they, before the old slogans of aren't you glad you use dial and speed stick and everything else, right? But the men found it extremely important to keep away from the public the bantering of ideas that was going to take place for the next three and a half months. So the, no surprise that the very first order of business was established or set up by Benjamin Franklin, who would become the chief diplomat. But George Washington would be the presiding officer. He would be the one to sit on the day, that elevated platform, at the desk or table that was the only one that faced all of the men in that room. And for the next three and a half months, George Washington literally did not say a thing. What about, though, Benjamin Franklin? Why did I refer to him then as the chief diplomat? Ladies and gentlemen, there's no way the convention would have started without Washington. But as I'll explain in the next episode of the next podcast, there's no way the convention would have stayed together without Benjamin Franklin. And again, that's where we'll start the next podcast. Thank you very much for listening. Please go to my website, ceconsella.com. Email me with any questions or comments that you might have, book recommendations especially. If you like what we discussed as well, please leave me a review. Thanks again for listening. Have a great day. Thank you.